The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 2009, I discovered TED Talks. TED Talks, if you haven't heard of them, are well-produced 10 to 20 minute presentations from expert speakers on education, business, science and creativity. I remember back in 2009 discovering Ted's channel on YouTube and spending hours watching videos on the site. I think one of the reasons why I spent so much time on the site is that I was looking for inspiration. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at university and I wasn't sure what sort of career I'd have. I must have watched hundreds of presentations on topics from modern medicine to schooling, but one talk stayed with me. It made such an impact that I remember it to this day. In fact, it's the only presentation I remember watching. It's called Life Lessons from an Ad Man, presented by Rory Sutherland. Now, Rory's been on this show before, so probably needs no introduction. He spent his career at Ogilvy building their behavioural science team, and he's inspired millions with his work, his books, and his TED Talk. In fact, one story he gave at this very presentation was so memorable that it's stuck with me for all these years. Rory shares a real story about a real debate engineers had the decade prior. They debated, how do we make the journey to Paris via Eurostar better? The engineers came up with a solution, a very smart engineering solution. It was to spend about £6 billion building completely new tracks from London to the coast, knocking about 40 minutes off the three and a half hour journey time. Now, Rory wasn't impressed with this idea. He said that it striked him as an unimaginative way of improving a train journey to merely make it shorter. He asks, what's the opportunity cost of spending £6 billion on railway tracks? He wonders what you could do instead. Here's his suggestion. What you could do is employ the world's top male and female supermodels, pay them to walk the length of the train, handing out free Chateau Petru for the entire duration of the journey. At which point you'd have about 5 billion left in change and people would ask for the trains to be slowed down. This example stuck with me because it highlights the irrational way we often view improvements. We come up with solutions that perhaps look good on paper, but won't be great for the people who the decision actually affects. And Rory's point was simple. If we focus on understanding humans and our psychology, then we can build better solutions. Now this story, this example, this presentation, it didn't just stick with me, it stuck with today's guest as well, Pete Dyson. Pete went on to work with Rory at Ogilvy and is now co-author of a book with him on how to improve transport with a human-first approach. Here's Pete introducing himself. Yes, hello. I'm Pete Dyson. I'm a behavioural scientist who specialises in transport and travel behaviour change. Uh, I've recently written a book with Rory Sutherland called Transport for Humans. Um, And it's the first book to really explore in depth um, how people think about travel, how we can creatively apply not just nudges, but also really fundamental principles of design and evaluation to improve the way people get around. 
Um, I formerly worked at the Ogilvy Behavioral Science Practice uh, that Rory founded some 10 years ago. A couple of years ago, I moved on a secondment to the UK Department for Transport, where I've helped set up a behavioral science team uh, in that department, and that's where I now work. Um, but I'm here today to talk about the book uh, that Rory and I have written together, so representing myself in a personal capacity. Pete, like me, is fascinated about applying human-first principles to problems. For Pete, he focuses on transport, looking at how tiny tweaks can have a big impact on travel. Many of the insights Pete will share today are relevant for those of us in the business world, because after all, businesses are keen on improving customer experience, so learning how transport can impress and annoy customers can be useful to us as well. But before we dive into the small tweaks that could dramatically improve transport, let's first hear Pete explain why we need human-centred design in transport and how it inspired both him and Rory. So the reason that you really need human-centred design uh, is to bring the user um, back into the forefront of these uh, systems. Um, and it's really a case of psychologists and behavioural scientists, but also designers coming to the fore and bringing their skills to the table to assist what is and will be um, an engineering-led um, sector. So what that actually means for a user is any number of things that relate to the customer experience. So by way of example, Rory and I are really inspired by uh, the innovations on the Moscow Metro, whereby if you were traveling into the uh, city center in Moscow, then you would hear a male voice announcer on the tannoy. And for all the trains and metros leaving the city center, you hear a female voice um, on the tannoy. Now, no one in any survey is ever going to give you that kind of innovation and that kind of answer. They're not going to say, how about we change the uh, gender of the voices? But what we know from in that that um, that particular example is it helps people make sure they get on the right uh, bound train, the northbound or the southbound, and it provides some reassurance to passengers along the way. So these things are known to many uh, public transport operators. We're inspired by the kind of work that's happened in the past, which might not have been by psychologists or behavioral scientists inspired by the works of um, Kahneman and Tversky, for instance, the Victorians, when building the undergrounds, had human-centered design at their heart. Um, they even used different tiled patterns um, on the walls of the underground um, in order to signal to people who couldn't read or write uh, which destination they, they had arrived at. Um, so they're using symbols and colors uh, to help people understand what's going on. And I think that's where we're most inspired that there's a new forefront to push forwards. And that's to say, there will, of course, be designers in this world to ask people how they work, but it's on psychologists to use the scientific method to try and um, find out how does our brain really work and then how do we apply those insights we might not otherwise we might not otherwise find out. Moscow uses male voices to give information on inbound trains to the city centre and a female voice on outbound trains. Now, this is a low-cost, small intervention that might not seem like an obvious improvement, but it's one of those small tweaks that makes the metro system much easier to use. These interventions, when built on, can elevate a confusing experience into a, a simple one. 
Japan, known for having some of the best public transport on the planet, have gone one step further. In Japan, each station has a unique arrival jingle, specially composed to represent the character and heritage of the station's neighborhood. Passengers learn to instinctively react to the sound of their stop's own distinctive tune. In practice, this means fewer people miss their stop and more people make it to the destination on time. Many of these innovations seem obvious with hindsight, but they were far from obvious at the time. All too often we opt for measurable improvements, like increasing the speed of the Eurostar by a few minutes. But these human-centered changes can be just as impactful, saving customers just as much time on average. There's one great study from Pete's book which reveals how customers don't always want the obvious improvements, like a faster train. Here's Pete to explain. Moscow uses male voices to give information on inbound trains to the city centre and a female voice on outbound trains. Now this is a low-cost, small intervention that might not seem like an obvious improvement, but it's one of those small tweaks that makes the metro system much easier to use. These interventions, when built on, can elevate a confusing experience into a, a simple one. Japan, known for having some of the best public transport on the planet, have gone one step further. In Japan, each station has a unique arrival jingle, specially composed to represent the character and heritage of the station's neighbourhood. Passengers learn to instinctively react to the sound of their stop's own distinctive tune. In practice, this means fewer people miss their stop and more people make it to the destination on time. Many of these innovations seem obvious with hindsight, but they were far from obvious at the time. All too often we opt for measurable improvements, like increasing the speed of the Eurostar by a few minutes. But these human-centered changes can be just as impactful, saving customers just as much time on average. There's one great study from Pete's book which reveals how customers don't always want the obvious improvements, like a faster train. Here's Pete to explain. A piece of research that we include in the book comes from Transport for London. And by good chance, the installation of the Wi-Fi routers on the underground line led to them being able to get this brilliant new insight into how people actually travel between the barriers. And it shows some new things that we didn't otherwise know. So for those um, familiar with London, it was one of the early adopters of the Oyster card system, a, a very universal tap and go system. We didn't previously know how people moved or which lines they took to get from um, point A to point B. But some analysis has revealed that actually between two really main line stations, this was Liverpool Street and Victoria, it's only some 44% of people, so less than the majority, actually took the fastest route, which was the central line and the Victoria line. Um, but a quarter of people chose to take the longer, more circuitous route of the circle line, which doesn't involve any escalators or any changing, doesn't involve going as deep. Uh, the train doesn't come quite as often um, and it doesn't move quite as fast, um, but many people appear to be choosing that. What's interesting is that many marketers seem to have caught on to this. They know that customers aren't obsessed with finding the fastest possible journey, and they care about the customer experience as well. The marketers behind Eurostar Marketing initially created ads that promoted the speed of the journey, highlighting how quick the train was. But these ads didn't really resonate. After a while, the marketers changed track, emphasising the premium rail experience and the symbolic connection between iconic European cities and the routes they served. 
these ads fared much better and Eurostar has kept a similar approach since. The marketers behind Concorde experienced the exact same transformation. They started by promoting the flight as a supersonic jet and then they changed to marketing it as an 11 mile high social club. And ultimately this preference for experience over speed killed the Concorde. Once flatbed seating and traditional jumbos became available, customers flocked for slower journeys that were more enjoyable, and marketers had no trouble of selling the experience of a shower on board. The lesson here is simple. As a business or a marketer, don't assume that the technical feats you've mastered to create your service matter to your customers. Ultimately, they won't care about a tunnel under the English Channel or a supersonic jet. They'll care about what the experience will be like for them. Focus on that and you'll be able to create marketing that resonates. But let's move away from marketing now and focus on how small, behaviorally inspired changes can make transport better. Here is a wonderful example from Houston Airport in the States of a tiny change that had a big impact. But it shows that we should challenge the assumption about speed or in this case journey time being the most, uh, being a uh, governing factor that everything would go around. Rory and I are also inspired that even where individuals aren't prioritising that, maybe because they wanted a comfortable route or they wanted to definitely get a seat or they wanted to listen to or read something on the, on, on, on their journey, um, even when they don't choose that, it's really important that we uh, keep away from the assumption that everyone chooses the fastest route because if they did, there would be a big, big problem because those busy, busy lines would be even busier. And that's actually what we're starting to see with journey planners and sat-navs that funnel us more and more down the same route that is optimal for the individual, but not optimal for the masses. So the fact that we have what we call messy preferences can actually be better for society and for us overall. It's good that we're slightly more diffuse. Now, this is one of my favorite examples from the book, because on paper, it shouldn't work. If customers are complaining about waiting for bags, then surely making them walk for longer wouldn't reduce complaints. But it did. See, time spent walking feels like time well spent, whereas time spent looking at a baggage carousel feels stressful. Pete and Rory share all sorts of studies that show how our perception of time changes based on the situation we are in. What's obvious is that time spent waiting feels longer than time spent doing almost anything else. A review of 17 studies covering four countries showed that on average, a minute of waiting time feels like three minutes compared to time spent traveling. But interestingly, walking feels long as well. Time spent walking feels twice as long as using other transport modes like driving or cycling. To help... Businesses can change the environment that customers are walking in, creating a calm ambience that will help shrink the perception of time. Recent virtual reality testing has discovered that dimmer lighting with a warmer hue has this effect. It reduces our perception of time. At Gatwick Airport, together with HSBC, they redesigned a long section of walkway that passengers had to take to get to their gates. Instead of walking through a sterile, silent corridor, they installed authentic sounds from the Yangtze River, featuring over 100 hours of sounds from 35 locations on the Yangtze. 160 speakers immersed travellers in this 3D sound as they walked down the corridor. Now, this sounds like a lot of effort, recording and setting up and playing these sounds, but when you understand that it improves the experience, 
it's probably cost effective, especially when compared to installing other technologies to actually reduce the amount of time spent walking. Cleanliness is important too. A recent trial on Dutch train carriages showed that time travel is perceived as shorter when the train is clean. And it even seems that pastimes pass the time. Stimuli like music, advertising, entertainment, they redirect our attention, leaving us with less processing capacity to keep an eye on the time, which then seems to pass the time more quickly. There's one more famous study which I'll share with you which shows that our perception of time changes whilst we're online as well. When Michael Norton and Ryan Buell studied the flight search engine Kayak, they found that users preferred and valued seeing an animated loading bar scrolling through airline names when they conducted their search, rather than receiving instant results. This became known as the labour illusion or Kayak effect. People value things more when they see the perceived effort that has gone into their creation. It's the same reason why restaurants cannot serve their desserts too quickly for fear of appearing like fast food. So an understanding of behavioural science can improve our experience in all sorts of ways, from reducing perceived time spent waiting to helping us catch the right train. But what about bigger problems, like stopping people from driving and encouraging more climate-friendly travel? Well, after a quick break, you'll hear Pete explain how human-centered design could encourage more sustainable forms of travel. But first of all, he'll explain why so many of us are hooked on driving. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. This first section of the book goes on to look at different um, angles from different disciplines within psychology and economics and how they uh, approach and answer the question, why is the car so often the default choice? And I think the point that listeners might be interested in relates to the availability bias. And it's a piece that you really can, when you put yourself in the shoes of a homeowner and a and a, someone with an access to private vehicle, you can really see uh, that the car has a royal flush of biases in its favour here. It's right outside the uh, house. You can see it from most of the windows from the front of your house. Uh, the keys are hanging up inside your, inside your house. Um, when you step into the vehicle, you're immediately sort of going. Your journey feels like it's definitely started. Um, the tool of the car is a definite way that you're very, very likely to get there, even if you do get stuck in some traffic jams um, along the way. So it has that really nice uh, low or high, high dependability to it. But it's this availability of it being 
the way in which um, it can be front of mind and everything else needs to can be compared against it. Personally, being a, uh, not owning a car but having a bike, I can actually, em- I can to some degree empathise that most journeys to me look like a cycle, even when it's just around the corner and I could certainly walk it, but the bike is right there. It's so easy to take out my door. I still then have to lock it up. Sometimes it's more faff and more hassle than I might have thought. Sometimes I might be better off getting the bus and not getting soaking wet in the rain. So while I'm certainly a cycle advocate, um, I acknowledge that some of my own biases have similarities. The availability bias is a mental shortcut that means we rely on immediate examples that come to mind when making a decision. So when you're thinking about traveling somewhere new, you'll probably use the form of transport that comes to mind first. As Pete says, for car owners, it's very hard to ignore the availability bias. The car is visible out of the front window, the keys are hanging in the door, the ease of travel is just so easy. So changing this behaviour is really hard, especially because it's habitual. A study of Londoners' travel showed that only 4% of drivers actually ever thought about which mode of travel they would use before a given journey. 96% of us didn't even think, we just got in the car or train or bus and went. So can behavioural science offer a solution? Can it encourage us to use other forms of transport? I think that there's a lot to be said for having more and better live updates of your local transport right ahead of you, largely because the car becomes the default choice where it is the quickest way to get from A to B, and it often will be the quickest way to get from A to B. So the challenge is really not necessarily making um bus and car and a bus and um bus public transport cycling and walking faster but just getting people to leave the house earlier or leave work a bit earlier and that's very much a social intervention uh, that looks at how we can get people to plan and say hang on a minute if you left 10 minutes earlier you could have walked that uh, what's that 10 minutes worth to you and if you do walk it that's not wasted time as we've talked about that could be time you could spend doing lots of things uh, it could be a phone call it could be listening to music it could be um it could be just a walk so there's lots of interventions and uh and things that we might do along the way one of the points that frustrates me if i can uh take take a moment is that uh journey planners don't give a fair fight between public transport and uh and the car and journey planners don't give a fair fight because they represent for uh the car the you plug it in and it'll tell you the journey time from the moment the wheels are moving on the car to the moment the you're supposedly at your destination thereby missing the the walk to the car bit but crucially which is the greatest hassle of a car the park the car bit find somewhere to park it and walk over to it whereas public transport has a whole set of advantages that don't get captured there because it doesn't uh, then account that once you've arrived at your destination, you're definitely right there and there's no parking. So I do feel like it would be great if um, certainly sat-navs encompassed the fact that you are going to need to park and you add a few minutes onto it. Otherwise, um, yeah, it's not quite a fair fight. Better journey planners and improved live information for local transport will encourage some folks to stop taking the car, but not all. Some could argue that this isn't enough. So what about a bigger change? Well, one behavioural science solution would be to make us walk to our cars by shifting residential parking out of sight 
and away from driveways into separate car parks away from the streets. This means the streets would become car-free with the exception made for pick-up and drop-off zones. This sounds kind of radical, but some towns are actually like this and have been like this for 20 years. This is exactly the long-term policy adopted by the district of Vauban in Freiburg, Germany. Two decades since implementing the out-of-sight car parks, car ownership has plummeted. Today, in the town, only 18% of people own a car, whereas in the rest of Germany, 71% of people own a car. Simply removing the availability bias changed behaviour. Pete's got more examples, though, of smaller, subtler changes to increase the use of public transport. We would want to improve the passenger experience just for many reasons. The profitability of the service, dignity of people using it, not time wasted. Um, but there's also, also this aspect of like the only way we're going to have a sustainable uh, transport system is also by making the experience really, really good. Um, some of the more, uh, the clearer sort of how questions for people choosing public transport would definitely be uh, making it easier to use and easier to use for new users um, such that you've not got so many barriers to entry. And we go through these in some detail and you've mentioned some of them um, on making the ticketing really fair and simple, even integrating ticket prices into the uh, costs of uh, into home building and houses having um, uh, season tickets built into them, um, employers providing the credit and the um, transport access so that their employees can get to their place of work. We go into some detail about building habits and norms, about changing even the requirement to have strict appointment times and start times to things, to broadening that out that would enable public transport to get a fairer shot at being uh, competitive with other things. And my particular passion for the how we introduce public transport would be a point about transport repertoires and risks covered later in the book, but it's a degree to which I think we would be serve a society better off in the future if more people could travel and were fluent in traveling in more different ways, which is to say, we know from the research that many people haven't taken a bus at all, or haven't taken a train at all in the local area. Equally, many people haven't necessarily driven, and it would seem a better future that people were able to pick and choose and had a habit and awareness of where their nearest bus stop was, how they would, that the train does actually run from X to Y and it's simple to get so that people are more, yeah, I use this word fluent or more, have more multimodal skills so they can pick what's right for them, uh, which is a softer approach, but I think does show what we see in other consumer places where people have repertoires that they dip in and out of, and that they do things in different ways. One of the principles Pete shared was the perceived sunk costs around public transport. See, many of us who use public transport regularly don't realise that there's actually quite a lot of time and cognitive effort required to learn how to use the new route. It is costly for us to try and figure out how a local bus network works, or to consult the train timetable, check off-peak fares and learn where the stops and stations are. The first attempt to do these types of journeys are often tiresome and always unfamiliar, and this is a cost that new users incur. 
See, online grocery service recognised this cost and they enticed new users in by using delivery discounts to encourage new sign-ups. Could the government do the same? Perhaps they could offer £100 off rail and bus vouchers in return for paying vehicle tax. Every car owner would then have an incentive to familiarise themselves with their local routes. There are other cost-free changes that could reduce the cognitive effort of taking the train for the first time. Take buying a train ticket. If you search for a train ticket to Birmingham, Pete and Rory say that you'll be presented with a bewildering screen of train station options. There is Birmingham New Street, Birmingham Moor Street, Birmingham Snow Hill and Birmingham International. Which one are you meant to pick if you haven't been before, if you don't know? It's really not clear. Pete suggests you could use social proof to solve this problem. Rather than present a list of all potential options, you could share which route is most popular. You could say something like 71% of travellers on your route select Birmingham International. Online travel agents do this with hotels, so why not use the same nudge to confirm to people that they've picked the right route? And what about other new user discounts? Pete suggests a time-limited rail card to be issued to tourists on entry to the United Kingdom. The Norwegians and Danes show us that this is possible. They give free travel to people on their birthday and on National Book Day, which is the last Sunday in March. The Dutch make train trips free for anybody who presents a Dutch language book, one that was purchased within the last week, instead of a ticket, thereby selling train travel as time for what people really value, a seat offering room for reflection and a bit of time to study the Dutch language. Enticing new users onto public transport, even once, could help shift habits. So why not build incentives to try and encourage it? All right, that is all for today, folks. We've looked at small tweaks that can revolutionise travel. Things like adding a male and female voice to announcements to make sure you catch the right train. Making people walk further to reduce complaints. And how sounds from the Yangtze River can make a walk across a Gatwick corridor feel a lot shorter. We've seen how marketers can improve their messaging by moving away from highlighting technical improvements that nobody really cares about, like supersonic travel, to instead focusing on experiences that matter to travellers, like a lie-flat bed. And hopefully you've seen how this human-centred approach doesn't just apply to travel, but all sorts of businesses. If you want to learn more, then go and pick up a copy of Rory and Pete's book, Transport for Humans. It's really fascinating, and I think it's a must-read for anybody in the transport sector. I've left a link to it in the show notes if you do want to check it out. And you can also follow Pete on Twitter. He's Pete underscore Dyson on there. While you're there, you can also follow me on Twitter too. I'm P underscore Agnew. That's A-G-N-E-W. And if you do, you'll see marketing tips from me every week. I'm constantly sharing real world examples of brands applying behavioral science to their marketing. And it will help you, hopefully, improve your marketing as well. Okay, that's all for this week's nudge. Thank you so much for listening.